0: Democracy Sausage is supported by advertising provided by our podcast host so that we can keep making what you love, great pods that tackle the important issues. For more great podcasts, go to policyforum.net forward slash podcasts.
1: One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. I asked the
2: Prime Minister, how good is Australia? Please explain. Mate, this is just impossible. Too many people were confused. Uh, You bet you are. Uh, You bet I am.
0: I have always
2: believed in miracles. That's not a policy.
0: Not now, not ever. I mean... (laughs) These comments are completely inappropriate.
1: I'm sure she's right.
0: But I ain't spending any time on it.
1: How pathetic. You're a classic space invader.
3: Disgusting, mud-sucking creatures. You should be ashamed of
4: yourselves.
2: Oh, fair shake of the sauce bottle, mate.
4: Taste of democracy.
2: Very good. G'day there, and thanks for joining us again on Democracy Sausage, which comes to you weekly out of the Crawford School of Public Policy studio at the Australian National University. And I should say a big congratulations to our very own Nobel Laureate and Vice-Chancellor Brian Schmidt, who has just been reappointed for a second five-year term just over this most recent weekend. Professor Schmidt has been a strong supporter of this podcast and I'm pleased to say he'll be joining us at the barbecue Hot Plate sometime in coming weeks. I'm Mark Kenny from the ANU's Australian Studies Institute and formerly from many years just across the lake from here in the Federal Parliamentary Press Gallery. Speaking of Parliament, it's having itself a wee break after a bit of a taxing time, what with all the friction over sports grants and whether Michael McCormack really, truly believes in his heart that coal can save the world. Australians must marvel at the sheer capacity for hard graft these people exhibit. Little wonder they need to sneak away for holidays from time to time. Luckily, there are no pressing issues to deal with apart from the clear and present danger to religious freedoms from aggressive secularists and another in union militancy costing the economy millions of strike days lost. You'd think we were in the 1970s, or in the case of religious freedom, perhaps even the 1950s. These indeed are the priorities of a government that not only lords the quiet Australians, but trades on them, relies on them to stay quiet while they go on to serially disappoint. Barnaby Joyce, you know, the guy who pleaded in a very strange video over the Christmas break that he just wants the government to stay out of his life? Well, he's now declared that Michael McCormack will lead the minor party to the next election, that there'll be no further challenge, and from here on in, it will be the McCormack-Morrison government. Yep, that's the way he said it, the McCormack-Morrison government. And frankly, he might be right. Just as Malcolm Turnbull was hemmed in by the ideological climate deniers in his party room, Miracle-Morrison is also restricted by the pro-coal lobby. And thanks to Barnaby's challenge, even though it didn't restore him to the top of the government, you know, the one he wants out of his life, it has turned the Nationals from McCormack down into a pro-coal machine, essentially making McCormack a red-hot opponent of the Paris target of net zero emissions by 2050, to which Tory-led Britain has signed up and to which the major employer groups in Australia are also keen to sign up. Morrison is said to be flirting with following suit, but as we know, he does fudge on these sorts of things. His line, I would never sign Australia up to anything before knowing the full costs, sounds responsible until you think about it with any depth. It deliberately evades the reality that the costs of the world not doing so are likely to be much higher, incalculable, and in Australia's case, we've already seen some of those costs. It's well known. Hell, they probably even know about it in Hawaii. And anyway, don't we expect our leaders, particularly our government leaders, to be identifying the costs that they are going to be responsible for now? If we are going to have these 2050 targets, or indeed any ambitious targets that extend out way beyond the governmental cycle or the political cycle, then we need to know how we're going to get there. That's obviously the big debate that's going on in Australian politics at the moment, the issue of how, as well as this sort of first principles debate that's going on in the coalition about whether we need to act at all. Putting that to one side, if the government is going to commit to a longer-term target, it needs to also commit to short-term budgets and to short-term benchmarks that it needs to meet in order to get there. We don't see any sign of that, I'm afraid. Now, in the second half of the pod, we'll discuss the religious freedom legislation in a bit more detail. But first, let me bring in our guests. And joining me as usual is Dr. Maria Teflager from the School of Politics and International Relations. Welcome, Maria.
0: Hello, everyone.
2: Also with us is Professor of History, Frank Bongiorno. Frank, welcome back to the podcast.
3: Thanks, Mark. Hi, everyone.
2: And it's also welcome back to Anne McNaughton, Senior Lecturer from this Law School at the ANU here and connected also with the Centre for European Studies. And the Law School celebrating its 60th year this year, that's right, isn't it?
1: It is, Mark. Um, hello and Hello to the listeners as well. Good. We're looking forward to a lot of celebrations this year.
2: Yeah, well, it's a, certainly a significant uh, anniversary. And John Warhurst is an emeritus professor, a political scientist, and a columnist here at ANU. Welcome, John. Great to be here, Mark. Now, look, let's go straight into this question about you know the Morrison government because I think it's really after a couple of weeks of Parliament and you know with the things that are now on the agenda on the agenda, we can really look at uh, this sort of quite existential question, really, or a sort of essential question about the Morrison government, and that is, what does it stand for? If you take out the things we've mentioned before, here, the Religious Freedom Bill and the Ensuring Integrities Bill, what does its worksheet really amount to?
3: Well, it went to the last election, you know, without terribly much on offer, um, as a very deliberate strategy, really. And in some ways, what we've seen in the months since is a reflection of that. I mean, it's a kind of empty bucket in, into which it's putting, you know, various, uh, policies, many of them seemingly at the margins of, 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 uh, most people's interests and most people's sense of priorities. Um, and, as a result, yeah, it seems pretty rudderless. um it's being i guess knocked about by each crisis in a way that a, a more i suppose stable government a government with a, a stronger sense of direction would be you know i think less vulnerable to that kind of uh, situation. And it seems it also increasingly undermined by the problems with Morrison's own leadership. I mean, there's obviously a distinction to be made between how a government's travelling and how the Prime Minister's going. You're obviously closely related, but they're not quite the same thing. I mean, if you look at polling at the moment, it's still pretty close actually, and Mm. Labor would be very concerned about that. But Morrison's own approval rating is obviously, has taken a battering over the summer. And I guess the question is to what extent that's likely to flow on to the standing of the government. Um, So it, it, it looks crisis ridden. But at the moment, it's it, it's not entirely clear how damaging that's going to be in the medium and longer term. Yeah,
2: because a lot of this stuff has happened quite early in its term, and so uh, I guess one of the things that you could say in the government's favour and Morrison's favour is that there is time to recover. But Maria, it's interesting, isn't it? Because when the election occurred, because all the polls said that Labor was going to win, because Morrison had just you know got to the job, uh, you know not long before that. After yet another bruising sort of internal coup, you know, the sort of thing we've seen happening in Australian politics over the last dozen years or so, uh, there was this – because he won the election in that way, there was this sense that Morrison had this enormous authority. And yet, going back to the point I was making a minute ago about coal, for example, and, and how McCormack and the Nats are now really sort of toughening up on that, do we really see the sort of authority uh, that, that Morrison was supposed to have or is he in fact looking – like he's just like all the other prime ministers we've seen recently kind of having to react.
0: Uh, So I think the government is in many ways defined by a negative set of agendas. So, you know, negative agendas, like what they're opposed to what Labor will do, which is kind of what the last election was prosecuted on, and um, negative agendas about what faction or which part of the coalition wants to do something versus um, another. And, And you're right, Morrison did after that surprise election victory, have um, an enormous amount of authority simply for the fact that he delivered a victory when no one expected him to do that. And uh, like a lot of centre-right parties that are sort of leadership vehicles, the Liberal Party being a classic case, the UK Conservatives being another, you know, electoral victory is really important to seeing these parties function well. But I guess it goes to the heart of this question, which is, we don't actually know what the Morrison government wants to do with uh, government, except for delivering a surplus, and it's not really clear beyond simply being able to say that we've delivered a surplus, to what end any of this is, is, is going to be happening. And I think what is sort of additionally interesting is that most of the sort of forward agenda that we do see, which is around industrial relations, the unions and the religious freedom stuff, it's all kind of coming out of Christian Porter's... Um Office, so mm. so you know sort of suggesting that he's a really important part of um you know the government's sort of front line, but you know to answer your question directly yeah i think I think the the personal downgrading of Morrison's status as a leader has obviously affected his authority. It's pretty plain that he does not have the authority to impose whatever solution he wants on climate on his party. He's hemmed in by not only his own party, but also the coalition. And, um, and that, that is a problem for them especially now as business is increasingly advocating for a discussion around a transition. Yeah, yeah this
2: is really interesting. There are major employer groups saying they want to get to 20, uh, net zero emissions by 2050. Uh, they're looking for those sort of policy adjustments. There have been some sort of, um, I guess, rhetorical hints from Scott Morrison and moderates certainly within the Liberal Party that uh, there is a recognition of a need to pivot in some way, but at the same time, we have now the junior coalition part- party uh, or partner um, really toughening up its stance. I mean, it's really quite fascinating when you look at it from from the perspective of uh, the comparison with Turnbull, because we know Turnbull was hemmed in by the, the existence in the party room of Tony Abbott and Craig Kelly and a number of other sort of pro coal hardliners, who were, you know, not even prepared to let the National Energy Guarantee make it you know, to the parliament really, or at least the PM wasn't because he knew they were going to, you know, make merry hell with it. Um, And the feeling was, generally speaking, that, uh, you know, the the great advantage Morrison had was that he no longer had either Turnbull or Abbott in the parliament, that he'd won an election, that he wasn't meant to win, he'd done it off his own bat, and he had, uh, you know, a party room now that was, you know, relieved of that those toxic personality-driven divisions between those two great lions of the Liberal Party, Abbott and Turnbull. But what everyone seemed to forget was that Barnaby Joyce is still there, and Barnaby Joyce has now gone about, along with Matt Canavan and a few others, has now gone about formalising the Nationals' opposition to any sort of significant pivot on climate. It suggests that Morrison has no more authority than previous prime ministers, and. Right at the time when politically for his relationship with the electorate, he really needs to be making that move.
1: There are interesting comments that you've made there, Mark. And one of the things that I'm observing, and unlike the other colleagues around the table here, I'm not a specialist in the detail of Australian politics. And so in a way, I step back a little bit. And what really comes home is the difficulty of having these personality politics, mm. whether that's here or whether that's overseas. And the other thing about the climate change, Professor Schmidt was on Radio National, for example, this morning and the interviewer asked him a question about the climate change debate and uh, I'm I'm paraphrasing a little, but in effect he said he was a little bit tired that in a sense we hadn't moved beyond that Uh, and it was a question about the, the validity of the science and so on. What I don't understand is why our leaders can't take us to a point where we're having a conversation that recognises we need to do something about the climate. We need to also ensure that people are not losing their jobs. We need to speak to uh, a positive, constructive future rather than continuing this path of fear-driven division. And that's and I, I suspect part of the reason that Prime Minister Morrison's unable to meet this challenge is because his ultimate aim seemed to be simply to win the election. Mm. He has not had an agenda clearly, Uh, nor has the coalition for that matter. I'm bemused by Barnaby Joyce's inconsistent behaviour. As you say, he was perhaps tired and emotional. I don't know what it was when he made his little little YouTube video. It Um, was rather bizarre. It was. It was. It unusual. Finished off
2: with looking at this guy and talking about the great power up there that was going to sort out the climate problem. For well, us, which was yes,
1: and and some, and,
2: some sort of abrogation of responsibility. I would have
1: thought, or at the very least, unhelpful. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, Cloud sourcing. So he's. It seems to me that none of them is looking beyond the end of their own nose, which is regrettable. Because what we really need is for our political leaders to be pulling together and actually giving us some some positive, constructive. Uh, input. I'm not saying necessarily vision, but certainly having some options and choices on the yeah, table. Yeah, it's a really interesting point I
2: wrote about this last week. This idea that, um, that, that there has been a community shift, and you would you would think, John, that that is the that they, that's the perfect set of circumstances for a kind of a compromise to emerge for the the sensible centre, as we're often here referred to, the two major parties who are not the Greens and not the Nats and, and or, or any of those smaller parties. They, they operate in the mainstream. The parties of government that they could uh, start to find some sort of common ground to inch the nation forward in this policy space, and yet they are. We, we see signs of further polarization really going on. That's that's a, a kind of a. It doesn't reflect well on our democracy, does it? No, I mean it
4: uh, <laughs> reflects terribly badly on our democracy. I mean I was taken by former vice chancellor Ian Chubb's uh, comments, which I th- I thought can really cut through in a way that perhaps, because he hasn't been a voice uh, he has been a voice on science but not mm. so much on and the he's former state, chief scientist yes yeah. uh, former uh, on uh, Australian democracy more generally and he has got a way of speaking which comes to and i think a lot of respect in the in the community and uh, yeah. and i think the overriding feeling that we are being taken for mugs and that there's a serious decline in trust which has been measured by the Australian Electoral Survey and others re- recently. Uh, it's just not ge- not going to go away. Um, so I think there's this double problem. There's the problem of um, the failure of the sensible centre to, to uh, come to grips with the problem. And I don't have any confidence that they will in the in the near future, because I think the uh, there's been such polarization over such a long time, there's been such personality politics. Um, I'm I'd be more worried about the contribution of someone like uh, Matt Canavan, who seems to me, at least in one sense, is a voice of the future, mm. and yet he's a destabilizing voice. I think he's uh, smarter than uh, uh, McCormick and uh, not as damaged as Barnaby Joyce. And I think once you get someone like that um, making extremist Remarks, um, then the democracy is really in in trouble. And I think, on the other hand, you just wonder whether the, the citizens will engage any more with what the sensible centre comes up with. Anyway, I mean, I think the average citizen probably really needs to be convinced over a long period of time that any statement or any um, solution, any compromise uh, by federal politicians, is really going to really going to stick. I mean, I know there's. Lots of people out there in the community for whom climate change really means an awful lot, um, but I think there are others who who feel, look, it's a very complicated issue. It's been around for a long, long time. You know, it'll take something special to engage with those people. I think not just um, some sort of compromise uh, by our political leaders. They'll need to prove
2: themselves. Yeah, it's a very good point. You'd almost think that it it needs to come. From the right, almost that 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 some sort of significant gesture needs to come from the right in order to, uh, you know, kind of um, dissolve as much opposition as possible and to lend as much credibility to whatever reform is necessary. Frank, what do you think about? I, I talked before about the extent to which Morrison is hemmed in. How much, by, you know, in the, in the sort of parliament, how much do you think he's hemmed in also by friendly media? That is. There are a lot of commentators, uh, you know, uh, in, in one news organization in particular, uh, that, uh, you know, uh, speak with great praise about the government all the time that constantly attack, uh, uh climate change activists and social progressives and so forth. And, you know, is is Morrison and the coalition generally kind of also hemmed in by them? Because how would they handle any sort of pivot?
3: Yeah, I mean, Murdoch Media, I think, is a, is a, for some years now, has been a double-edged sword for the coalition. We've seen a number of instances, particularly during leadership, you know, major leadership tensions, where it's such a player. I mean, the op-ed columnists, they're essentially players in those controversies, and it's arguably – Destabilizing, that is, it worsens a situation that's already, you know, toxic. Um, so, you know, I've never sort of bought the idea that, that, you know, um, the, 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 the Murdoch media news is, is a kind of 100% advantage for the, 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 the right in politics, because I don't think it's quite that, that simple. Um, I, I think it's, a combination though of, of, um, yeah, right wing media, Murdoch, Stokes, but also the power of the resources sector. I mean, you know, I think when I look at the last, say, 20 years of Australian politics, one of the critical moments was 2010 and, and the, the defeat of the, the mining tax. Mm. And, uh, you know, I think that, that was, um, politicians drew their conclusions from that. And that is, don't cross the resources sector, don't cross the mining sector. And I think that lesson was, you know, sort of absorbed on all sides of politics. And it seems to me that's almost as important and as significant as the kind of gridlock over um, global warming. Um, You know, I just just think that the ways in which through its campaign that year – the big miners basically presented themselves as custodians of the national interest, has been deeply damaging for our politics ever since, and and we're still living that out.
0: It actually goes directly to what Ian Chubb said, which was, you can't expect things to somehow improve if you turn your back on politics and just wait for an improvement to sort of show up. And it sort of goes to this, you know, where there are lots of interests in politics, Australians are turning away for very good reasons we have so much leadership churn, we have declining trust, we have an inability to settle a position on an issue that a lot of people understand is coming, whether we like it or not. Um, and so the solution for that is actually for everyone to participate more. That means that you know, for those of you that are engaged, if you listen to this podcast, you know, you need to be writing to your MP. You need to be signing petitions. You, if, if marching is your thing, you should do that, but you should be joining organizations that matter to you. You should be attending meetings, go to your local council and ask other people to do this too, because actually we're the only people that can currently change this incentive structure. Stepping back means that there's, that it will just stay the same.
2: I, I think that's good advice, but I would probably add to it, you need to be talking to people. Who don't agree with you? Exactly. You know, this is an important point here, and uh, uh, this is one of the things that worries me about the the shift that the Greens have just made. I mean, it worries me about the the way the Greens operate generally. Uh, I, I accept that it's part of their true believer strength as well. The concentration of belief within the Greens um, constituency is very strong, and that that's that's admirable for for people who hold those that set of views. But I don't think they. Um, have shown a great capacity to reach beyond that. And I don't think that shifting from Robert, uh, Richard Di Natale to um, Adam Bant is necessarily going to aid in that process. I think Bant's probably even more of a rhetorical hardliner. Uh, and so the real trick here has to be if we are going to get some sort of, uh, f- you know, a forward movement in this policy space, surely has to be in Convincing people who are opposed to action, or who or who are lukewarm on it because it might result in energy bills or whatever, uh, to uh, to realise that uh, there are big costs in not acting. There are there there are big costs in us just having an unproductive debate that goes on and on and on, where where in political advantage is always paid and played, and where uh, the the electoral cycle is the determinant of policy rather than you know the longer term mm. interests of the country. And this I'd say about the Nationals. The Nationals need to be talking to the rural sector, and representing them in the long interest. And that goes for coal workers as well, representing their long-term interests, which means acknowledging that their long-term interests aren't in coal. And that's
4: why I think, Mark, that groups like uh, Farmers for Climate Change and Rural Australians for for Climate Change are really important because in a sense they're the ones who have the credibility just by their location to be taken taking on their local uh, national party MPs and and those who and the resources sector those who uh, purport to speak for for rural Australians I think it is difficult I agree with you that the politics of the inter- interpersonal conversation is the way to go but I think on this, on climate change and some other issues everyone's so dug in 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 a way that uh, yeah. you know, one way of spoiling a good dinner party is to uh, say, "Right now, we're going to talk about climate change, and I'm going to <laughs> I'm going to convince you that uh, you know the costs of not acting are greater than you know." I mean, I
2: uh, well, well, that, only that, being that, half. Uh, you yeah, know, that's uh, changed a bit though over this summer, hasn't it? I mean, yeah, exactly. a lot of conversations at barbecues and and yes. dinners and so forth. And at the front bar, no doubt, yep. were uh, yeah, over the summer were about just the absolute, you know, catastrophe that befalled mm. this country or befell this country and um, and really did have people talking voluntarily about climate yeah. change. But yeah. it's
3: alarming how quickly the discourse changed too, I think, you know. How, when the how, rain came. Though. Well, the, yeah, the rain is always a, <laughs> a literal dab, But but I was also struck by just how, you know, there were these ready-made arguments, some expressed through conspiracy theories, that essentially... You know, undermined the the idea that there was a connection between the bushfires and climate change. You know, so a series of coded claims about what was really occurring, whether it was, you know, arsonists or greens or whatever. Mm. We had a, a, a liberal senator last week telling us it was eco terrorists. I mean, what's striking is. Is how quickly actually the language changed, and we're not talking about just you know someone on Facebook. The Prime Minister was doing it,
2: mm.
0: and that's really alarming. But, but I think I think an important thing to kind of remember for for all of you at home that are currently despairing over the course of this conversation is that there is um, a clear and growing trend for support on climate change, of some sort of action on climate change, and what is what is important about that is that. Currently, that is not well defined. So people do want some sort of action on climate change, but what they actually need to hear is a hopeful message about what this climate future will actually look like, uh, what might be clear sort of solutions, because there are plenty of people out there who are a bit massively overwhelmed by this problem, kind of know they need to sort of do something about it, but kind of, you know, as you sort of said, John, like listening to this stuff at dinner parties about doom and gloom and and the science is actually not what they want to hear. They want to hear that there will be jobs for their children, that there'll be jobs for them, that, um, you know, that actually this isn't the end of the world that we currently live in. And that's how the current conversation is framed. That's That's what Matt Canavan does. That's what Barnaby does. And to a great degree, that's what our prime minister does as well. And so that's why we need to be telling them, I don't want to hear this anymore. I want to hear what you're going to be doing for us over the long term. I want to hear positive solutions because ultimately they're trying to win your vote. So convince them that that's how they need to talk to you.
3: That's how the coal issue functioned last election, didn't it? Because I think I might have even said this in one of these podcasts before, but the ways in which it acted symbolically and many blue-collar workers clearly, particularly in regional areas – not not particularly exercised necessarily by Adani in particular, but were exercised by the notion that there was no future for them in the economy, and And that's that's the kind of message they were getting Mm. from some of the stuff, some of the discussion around coal and energy and climate change. That's entirely reasonable and normal.
2: It's a a different uh, sort of uh, climate, if I can put it like that, in Britain uh, on this subject, but also uh, just generally in the politics. Obviously, Boris Johnson... Just won an election uh, resoundingly, and you know his his slogan, of course, Anne was uh, "Get Brexit Done." Extraordinarily efficient, uh, not very uh, expansive, but nonetheless, thirty first of January came along. Uh, They've uh, they've technically left, although there's a whole you know there's a whole morass of things that now need to happen. But we're already seeing instability in the government. Um, You know, the treasurer's gone; Um, various other people have been moved around. What do you make of it all?
1: It's a very good question, Mark. The current cabinet, which uh, Boris Johnson's just um, reorganised, is a cabinet which has a very large number of um, members that are quite inexperienced. Overall, the cabinet is quite unified. And so to the extent that he will be seeking to push through the Conservative Manifesto, there ought to be the combination of a unified cabinet and Um, the clear majority that they have uh, in Parliament ought not to prevent that from proceeding. In terms of the domestic politics within the UK, as with anywhere, the challenge will be um, delivering on the objectives while also reducing taxes and looking to uh, finance those sectors that have been severely uh, cut in recent times. And My own personal view, looking at that situation, as with great many other places, is that inevitably, I mean, we just saw this recently with also in the US, but education and health always get cut. They always get cut. And they're always the places where we need our social infrastructure, where we need our supports, where it's about community and caring for one another. And so the opportunity within the UK to genuinely deliver on the demands there is going to be challenging let alone the added challenges of giving effect to what was the what's the withdrawal agreement. And I've made a decision this morning that I'm not going to talk about post-Brexit because Brexit is a gift that keeps on giving and it's going to give for a good decade or so to come. Um, and internally, among the challenges that Johnson will have, Prime Minister Johnson will have, are uh, issues around Northern Ireland. A push, an increased push almost certainly, even though it might come to nothing, it'll certainly be destabilising for Irish unification. The Scottish, the Scottish question, uh, pushing there whether or not again that actually results in any kind of a referendum or independence is quite another question. But what is common to all of this is internal destabilisation within the United Kingdom. And that's mm. a real challenge for them, notwithstanding the advantages they currently have.
2: Yeah, get Brexit done. sounded simple, but it's anything but. Mm. Look, we've gone very long in this first part of the podcast, so uh, let's just take a quick break there. If you want to uh, send in a question or feedback to us, uh, you can do so via Twitter on APPS Policy Forum. That's the Twitter handle. The Facebook group is Policy Forum Pod and the email is podcast at policyforum.net. We'll talk to you in just a moment.
0: or find us at policyforum.net slash podcasts.
2: Welcome back. Now, one of the things I could have said before the break, and I'm going to say now, is if you want to subscribe to us, you can do so on Acast, Apple Pods, or on Spotify. And a public service announcement, we have a special special pod coming out this week, the first in our Ask Policy Forum series, where you ask the questions, you'll hear it this week, if you subscribe to this pod But future episodes will only be available to members of our Facebook group. So if you're not a member, jump on Facebook now and join. You can find us uh, at Policy Forum Pod on Facebook. Uh, and uh, believe me, I was involved in the recording of that the other day. There was a, a degree of beer drinking and Japanese whiskey <laughs> and various other things, and uh, it all got pretty loose. But I, I hope it'll be a uh, very top amusing. Top quality, t- yeah. It's top quality stuff. <laughs> yeah, it now. right at the. Uh, yeah, it's after lunch.
0: I, I tell you what, it's hot <laughs> so enough food. in this studio
2: to justify yeah. a yeah, a cold beer. That's for sure. Now. What we want to do in this second part of the podcast is talk about the Religious Freedom Bill, because that is one of the identified priorities of the government. My uh, observation on this uh, consistently, and I'm happy to be told this is wrong, but it's, it's always felt to me like a solution uh, desperately in need of a problem. Uh, it, uh, I you know, can't really see where the, uh, the so-called crisis in religious freedom is. We all saw, of course, the... You know, the high profile Israel Falau incident and that was used as part of the justification for this. Um, but let's, let's drill down into this, uh, into this bill a bit further. At the moment, it is only in a, a sort of exposure draft stage. We're expecting to see the legislation quite soon. I think there's been two exposure drafts uh and attorney general christian porter who maria you correctly pointed out before seems to be the engine room of the government in so many things uh he's been uh, feverishly consulting with faith organizations uh, and other other people who've been making submissions uh to the government in relation to this exposure draft so we'll see where it goes, but there there are some interesting things we can say about this, uh, just to sort of uh, frame it. And at this point, I bring bring in, bring in uh, John Warhurst, particularly because I know you have a uh, you've uh, got quite an interest in this area. It is quite a a truncated uh, sort of proposal that um, the government is proposing. Notwithstanding my criticisms, I must say I'm to some extent encouraged when I read the exposure draft to see that. Christian Porter goes to some lengths to say that this does not create a positive right of religious freedom; rather, it's a it's a series of prohibitions on um, discrimination on unlawful grounds or grounds that would be unlawful if this were to become if this bill were to get through the parliament. Uh, do you have any general observations you'd like to make, John, about it? My general observation is that it's it's really a proxy for a
4: for a big cultural issue in Australian politics at the, at the moment and in the in the immediate short run, you can go back to the same-sex marriage debate and the fact that the, some at least or, of the religious uh, organisations are on the losing side in in that debate. But I put it in a broader framework of decades of uh, this, the slow and in some uh, ways also precipitate uh, decline of religion in, in Australian uh, society and culture. So I see the whole... Um, religious freedom bill as in some ways encapsulating a a sort of a drawing a line in the sand, that there's a very small number of um, quite powerful still uh, religious organizations who feel they've been dismissed or pushed around or not taken seriously. That phrase aggressive secularism is Mm. used a lot in religious religious circles. It doesn't really mean much. It just means the modern world is... uh, is advancing, and long may that be the that be the case. But I think for a small group of people, um, this is their chance to to have a win, and they've they feel they've been lost. They've had a su- succession of losses. You know, same-sex marriage is a, is one. Even as far as Catholics are concerned, the uh, mandatory reporting uh, of things heard in the confessional, which is coming in around states. The states at the moment there's euthanasia legislation um, advancing around the states there's the last uh, uh, effort of abortion decriminalization around the the states so if you if you're viewing it from a particular religious fortress, a conservative religious fortress you you think gee we 're losing consistently, on every on every issue. And they don't want to hear from us in on, in public life and they want us out of the public square and they treat us like deals and all, all of that sort of thing. I think that's the only way of explaining yeah. um, uh, the, the impetus behind this religious freedom bill. Some of it comes from um, uh, Catholic archbishops. Some of it comes from the Australian Christian lobby. Some from conservative senators of a religious bent. Um, some of it perhaps from some national party people uh, as as well. But as you say, I think it's a confected issue. It's not one that r- resonates with the general community. And I think when Malcolm Turnbull traded off, a lot of his trades didn't work out very well. No, they didn't. <laughs> when, they, when he traded <laughs> off uh, for, to the conservatives saying, okay, same-sex marriage is going to pass and I'm going to support it, um, but we'll give you this inquiry into religious freedom. I think he's dug a hole. Initially for himself, and now even for for Scott Morrison and and the government. I don't think it's going to end well uh, for them. but whatever they do, you've now got some conservatives like uh, Senator Fairbairn Wells saying, uh, "I want to go even further and restructure the whole anti discrimination uh, legislation." Um, some conservatives are happy enough with the way it's going, and then of course you've got the whole. Uh, community, the LGBT community, the progressive community, the social movements, who won't have a bar of it. So I, I'm not sure the Morrison government really is going to benefit from a, a big Barney about religious freedom when there's so many other much more important issues to to talk about. He'll be accused, firstly, of you know why are we talking about this
2: and and his own religiosity, well, which is well known, becomes he, he, a kind of it almost looks like a motive here exactly,
4: it? and that's yeah. another that'll become a. Um, yeah, stone around his his neck too. I think that he'll be pushing. He'll be seen as pushing self interest, uh, and it'll be defining him more and more in the in the community, which um, may be happy enough for him to be a Pentecostal Christian, but don't want him intruding too much of that Pentecostalism into into policy. So um, we can talk the details of the of the bill, but I think it's best at the moment to or the drafts, uh, exposure drafts, to see it in its broader picture.
2: Yeah, I think that's right. It's really um, – I, I, I think it's a very comprehensive explanation of it there, John, because there is this uh, kind of, I, I guess, sense that some people have who have not been following it closely that it comes out of a whole series of individual events or, or things that add up to a crisis in in freedom of religion in this country when, in fact, uh, what you're saying is that to some extent it's more of a crisis within those religions in terms of their – market share. Yeah, absolutely. It's a market share question. And it's also one that
4: perhaps people outside the these communities wouldn't realise, that it's quite heavily debated within the those communities. And you've got organisations like Vinnie's, for example, uh, not so long ago, and uh, Anglicare and Uniting Care coming out and saying, look, we don't discriminate and we don't want the right to discriminate and we're not in favour of this, this bill. So that uh, while these religious leaders, some of them, many of them based in Sydney, Anglicans and Catholics in particular, are f- are fighting for a stronger religious freedom bill, they've also have to look over their shoulder at their own communities. Many of them, younger people, um, who um, who don't want a bar of it,
2: I mean, he might get some sort of cover though. That is the government. If I can rather than say he, I mean, the government might get some sort of. Uh, cover from having the religious, uh, uh, you know, the organisations, the faith groups wanting the government to go further. That, to some extent, provides them with a degree of cover that mm. they haven't gone further, mm. and reassures those people who perhaps see no great need for this uh, that it's not as extreme as they thought it would be. Much like my reaction to reading it, I think Christian Porter, to his credit. Um was handed this job um as you say, it sort of came out of the deal Malcolm Turnbull struck to appease the religious conservatives in the in the coalition, but Porter has gone about it like a essentially like a conservative jurist would he's he's a conservative jurist he's not uh, looking to establish a positive uh, religious freedom act he's not looking to have a bill of rights type approach to this he's just looking to put in what are effectively fairly incremental protections to stop people being um, discriminated in the workplace and not even in all workplaces, frankly, uh, that, at all yeah. levels.
4: As you say, that would be his cover. I think he ha- to get out of it, he has to do something fairly quickly and fairly incrementally and uh, <laughs> stitch up some sort of support. Um, I mean, it's not not quite like climate change, but it, it does. it's the sort of issue which has quite extreme positions to deal with, both in the community and within his own parties. I mean, in a way, um, you should go back to the Ruddock report, um, which had people like Frank Brennan, the Jesuit priest and lawyer on it. And I I think from memory, they made some uh, quite incremental suggestions. Malcolm Turnbull should have got on and done something before he, while he was prime minister and now not just in this area not just <laughs> in this not just in this area exactly and uh, and uh, it it runs the risk now of um, just going on and on and on and going off in all different directions and uh, agitating people who are, still have quite a voice in the community and can be another destabilisation, I suppose, and a distraction, a, a real a real distraction. I mean, I don't think a government which lacks an agenda wants to get uh, wrapped up in this issue. It's a, it's a very small mm. uh, piece as far as most in the community mm. would want them to focus on.
3: We already had the specter too of Scott Morrison giving a, a, a media conference on the day when Sydney was surrounded by fire on this <laughs> very issue. It kind of, it made him look, Trivial and out of touch with the issues that mattered most. Yeah, this was yeah.
2: when he, he he and I think Christian Porter um, talked. I think they were releasing was it the second exposure draft, and um, you know, as you say, outside uh, in in Phillip Street and 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 the streets of Sydney were just thick with smoke. Yeah. People were walking around in masks, and it didn't rate a mention no. because the government was concentrating on this, and it did you know, the symbolism of that, and of course, that was then. Reinforced by the same prime minister taking a surreptitiously taking a trip to Hawaii with his family, you know, at the peak of all of this. So, yes, it does. the The optics of it have not been strong for the government. It is interesting, though, as I say, and I'm not trying to sort of sell this idea or even give the impression that I'm sold on the idea. But uh, it is interesting the extent to which this bill doesn't go. It talks about uh, protecting people for holding beliefs of religious uh, nature and mm-hmm. for not holding them. Uh, this is a kind of uh, um, a protection for atheists as well. Well, it's sort of Section 116 of the Constitution, isn't it, <laughs> which, which most people wouldn't know about. But,
4: uh, I mean, if it, if that is the case, um, then they need to get on with it. And, um, yes, stare, it's that uncontroversial, yeah, they should and, just do and it. And stare yeah. down some of the more... Extreme conservative views and say no, we're not we're not going to go in your direction. This is the this is the package, and I think the Australian community you know might buy that if it was got out of the way and moved on to other to other things.
3: Uh, when when the issue opened up, and as you say, John, it was very much around or out of the um, the marriage equality issue. I was reminded, you know, of the the wide exemptions in the Sex Discrimination Act of 1984, which I think were, to a great extent, the result of um, lobbying by the Catholic Archdiocese of Sydney, very successful lobbying. Um, And, you know, I guess my reflection on it all was if that piece of legislation were being negotiated today, the Catholic Church would have no chance of Mm -hmm. getting exemptions that wide. Why open this issue again Mm. if you're really into religious freedom? And the answer, I suspect, is because of its cultural wars. It's all about the – in a sense, Mark, it's not about solution. It's about the struggle. That's what really matters. (laughs) It's about the struggle. And there's a a kind of basic lack of pragmatism, Mm. I think, around Mm. those who are pushing for this because – they're essentially doing this in a climate where the churches are less powerful than they sure, were 35 they should,
4: years ago. They should realise how well off they are mm. based mm. on past deals. Mm. And, uh, yes, I, yeah. I agree with you entirely that I think it's a culture war issue for many conservative religious, religious leaders. Uh, and it's not a culture war where large numbers of their – flock (laughs) are behind them. There are those issues connected with the election, which we haven't spoken about, to do with Western Sydney and some of the new Christian communities and also Muslim communities in Western Sydney. So it does have a bit of a sting in the tail from an electoral point of view. But even that, I think, is a very small piece of explaining the whole debate.
2: It's a really good point. It was one I was going to come to because there are these electoral implications that that arise out of this. And the coalition, which I think you could say at least some key figures of over the years have had a antagonistic relationship with multiculturalism or at least a, a cool relationship with it, are now eyeing the advantages of these large multicultural diasporas uh in these electorates we know for example in the same sex marriage survey that the um uh, the seats that returned the the strongest no votes mm-hmm. uh, around the country certainly in new south wales were labor held seats in western sydney i'm thinking watson blacksland um and at least one other uh that I can't quite recall at the moment uh, but they all they were the top no voting places and it was put down to these large communities of uh, uh muslim communities in many cases but also other ethnic uh, religious groups that are religiously quite conservative and who are looking for protection of faith and so forth and it's the symbolism as much as the actual um details. It's the fact that they have a government speaking for them and the Liberal Party is wanting to say to these communities, we're your natural protectors.
0: Yeah, and this is an argument um, being put forward by Conchetta Ferrivanti-Wells, the senator um, from from New South Wales, um, and she'd been making this argument actually for a long time. It was Mm. related to the campaign around gay marriage as well, that there is this whole sort of swathe of votes available out there. in the western seats of, um, New South Wales, which is, or Sydney rather, which is kind of interesting actually because this is actually a debate that happens in the Liberal Party every sort of 20 or so years. The sort of great voting potential group out there in the western suburbs of Sydney might, it might be migrants. In this case, it's now religious migrants of some persuasions. And what has always been interesting to observe is that the Liberal Party has never really been able to reconcile attracting this group of voters on one issue set, maybe anti-communism, religion, um, or just just multiculturalism, with the other forces inside of that party. And I guess what's kind of interesting further to that is Nikki Sava, in her most recent book, sort of discusses how in the sort of the disintegration of Family First in Victoria has led to the rise of entryism, religious entryism from quite a few Christian sects into the Liberal Party in that state, which explains some of the destabilisation going on in Victoria, particularly around moderate senators having their seats threatened uh, and some of the activities there. So in some ways, like, Turnbull was kind of not that deft and made this promise as a way of getting this other problem to go away, but uh, it's not necessarily an easy sort of um, fix for them. And the fact that they won't just lance the boil and stare Mm -hmm. down these internal opponents... Um, means that they now have to answer a whole bunch of other questions that I don't think they really want to get into, right? Which is, not everyone who supports this religious discrimination bill is happy for it to be for all sex hmm. and all religious persuasions, and and that is a diabolical, including nightmare. atheism. Yeah. Well, <laughs> indeed. Um. But yeah, yeah, and so you can kind of sort of see this tension, this, this argument being made about you know there are conservative, culturally conservative, and religious groups. Amongst migrant communities that that are not always Christian, actually, often they're not. They might be Sikhs or they might be Muslims, and, and so on and so forth. Hindus, um, but you know the fact that for some people it's actually about Christianity and protecting mm. Christianity's titular position mm. in this country is going to come into conflict with that. The longer mm. this goes on, mm. the longer the questions remain mm. unanswered.
4: Maria, I think the fact that you mentioned uh, your Western Sydney and it means the Labor Party's position might well be <laughs> exactly. important here, and uh, like on. A few other issues at the moment. Um, you know, the Labour Party are hedging their bets, I think, in, in terms of the next election and not willing. I mean, they perhaps could have a role to play in, you know, in coming to some sort of compromise on, on religious freedom. I think they may have, under Bill Shorten, made some attempts to, uh, broker a, a deal. But, uh, now would be a good time for Anthony Albanese, who's not too far from, uh, the area that we're talking about, uh, in Western Sydney to, um, to put his mind to coming forward with some constructive proposals as to how we might resolve this. Yeah, it's an interesting point. I
2: noticed that Chris Bowen, and he's the member for McMahon, and that was the the name of the seat I couldn't (laughs) remember a minute ago, he's actually you know, raised this shortly after their, their shock defeat, mm. you know, that that uh, their um, communication with representation of faith communities in their electorates needs to be adjusted. You know, they, he's sort of signalling they need to do something in this space. And, of course, we've seen more recently uh, the so-called Otis Group that was meeting uh, rather cumbersomely in Canberra uh, right was at this
0: the moment. Yeah, it was entirely spontaneous. It was. Right, right at the moment
2: the government was on the ropes, this lot threw them a, a lifeline. Yes. Um, but uh, nonetheless, they describe themselves as being pro coal and also pro religious freedom. Mm. Uh, so mm. it's really the sort of conservative right of, or the the right of the right, really in the in the Labor Party. So there is some appetite, it seems, within Labor uh, to perhaps um, go down the same path to offer the, the government some cover.
3: They did put up a referendum proposal in nineteen eighty eight. Um, which mm. included the uh, freedom of religion. Yes. It was absolutely hammered by the Catholic Church. Mm. I remember at the mm. time, who presented it, it was. as a, a threat to, to state was. aid. Didn't they. And <laughs> I don't know <laughs> See, what. That's <laughs> why you're here, Frank. You remember this stuff. <laughs> but it is interesting. I mean, yeah. I suppose it's more—it's the rights-based one that, that this perhaps doesn't represent. Um, that that was at stake sure. in that in that particular sure. case. I mean, it was a mini sort of bill of rights that sure. was being
2: proposed, really, and uh, which the conservatives are normally opposed to, right? Um, the, you know,
3: oh Peter Reef went after it. it sort of made him as a as a liberal sure, politician. Sure. I mean that was his big thing and and it was just destroyed in mm-hmm. terms of the the, the yes vote sure. it was it was very low and was defeated across sure. the country you know.
4: and then later still um, frank brennan 's inquiry into a bill of rights um, was also mm-hmm. jumped on heavily by conservative religious leaders, so they 've had their chances in the past if they were really interested in uh, freedom of religion mm-hmm. to. To get on board, and they, uh, it reveals the self-interestedness of a lot of this uh, opposition, as well as mm-hmm. the culture war aspect of yeah. it of it all.
2: Yes, well, it's going to be interesting to see where this lands. I'm, I'm, I'm minded, Anne, of uh, you know um, uh, David Cameron's appeasement of the of the um, anti-Europe uh, side of you know UKIP and all those people by offering to have that referendum, proposing to have the, the referendum on whether they stay or leave Europe, and of course that's ended up being. Uh, you know, a, a political disaster in a lot of ways for just about everyone except for Boris Johnson in the end. But yeah, I mean, it's not maybe not so dramatic, but it's the same thing. If you if you appease those sort of ginger groups on your side, and then you offer them down the track some sort of uh, quid pro quo for a situation that's occurring, you know, the the bill eventually comes in.
1: It does. And one of the one of the observations I'd make across all of this, both in what we see in the northern hemisphere, and and the discussions here, is that it is consistently um, antagonistic, negative, and about appeasement, rather than taking a, dare I say it, a, in a sense, a high moral ground, but taking a position, having some vision, and having some vision of what is positive and what is possible. And um, before the time runs out, I'll wave my flag once again, pro-EU. It's one of the reasons I promote and support Warts and All, the project, the peace project that is the European Union, because Warts and All, with all the challenges and difficulties it faces, it is the one international transnational arrangement which has been able to demonstrate the way in which it is possible to bring people together, Absolutely, it is under challenge at the minute. What seriously concerns me is the extent to which this could be um, a specific target, and has been for some time. You know, Putin, Russia, but also the conservative elements in the UK. I'm under. I personally think that UKIP and Farage's purpose was not simply to get the UK out of the EU, but in fact to break up the EU, because it's much easier to, you know, apparently divide and conquer than it is to deal with, say, EU 27. And I sincerely hope that the EU 27 will continue the trajectory it has been establishing, you know, when it was EU 28, to manage this dialogue, ongoing conversation. One of the remarkable things about the EU is its capacity, the capacity of those leaders, the capacity of those peoples within the tent, if you like, of the of the treaties of the EU to actually engage with one another, to combine, to discuss. It's its not a picnic at all. It's mm. really challenging and difficult, but it persists and it continues. And, I, and, it, and it has been a model for other, you know, Mercosur um, down in Latin America as well. ASEAN, for example, has the European Economic Community Blueprint. Uh, sorry, the ASEAN Economic Community Blueprint. But lifted, admittedly adapted for ASEAN purposes, but nonetheless, this idea of trying to coordinate in a way that the UN simply has failed to do. So at that really meta level, the idea of having a shared set of values, a shared set of purposes, and listening to the recent, the the discussion we just had here, what uh, came out to me quite clearly was the extent to which those who were trying to prosecute you know various aspects of religious freedom or or um, political one-upmanship are picking specific areas at the expense of or without taking into account the other elements as as Maria identified, the other elements that are relevant in the discussion. These are sticky, complex issues and problems, whether we're talking about climate change, religious diversity and plurality, global peace, yeah, whatever it is, we actually need to get beyond the current, tit-for-tat nonsense that is currently part of the main discourse. It's really quite ridiculous and they should just get on with it.
2: Yes, I think that many people would agree with that. And those words you say about divide and conquer, I mean, it's the been pretty much the ethos of Australian politics really for too long, and we face these these big problems. Look, we've been going for a long time. We could obviously uh, talk further on this, but uh, we're we're out of time now. So I'll just thank Anne McNaughton, John Warhurst, Frank Bongiorno, and Maria Tafaga, And uh, join us again next week. And as I say, keep your ear out for that uh, special um, policy forum Ask Policy Forum pod, because uh, I think you'll find that interesting and amusing. Bye for now.
1: Thanks, Mark.
4: Thanks, Mark. Thanks, Mark. Bye.